Hi, it's Peter Martin here, Economics Editor of The Conversation. This is just a quick message to say that if you're interested in all the latest evidence-based analysis on politics, policy, economics, science, all of the issues making news in Australia, sign up today to our newsletter at theconversation.com. Now back to the podcast. Trust me, I'm like a smart person. From The Conversation, this is Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast where we ask the academic experts to surprise, delight and inform us with their research. I'm Sananda Cray. Today, we're hearing all about Siding Spring Observatory. Have you heard of it? It's not as famous as the dish at Parks, but it's a really crucial site for astronomical research in Australia. Our guide on this journey is Cameron Furlong. He's an astrophysics student who interned with us at The Conversation recently. Here's Cameron to explain. Okay, we just passed the sign saying that we sort of entered on the property of Siding Spring Observatory. We're very close now. It's very exciting. We've climbed quite a distance uh, up and uh, I'm sure the view's going to be spectacular. It's incredibly quiet. Um, You're on a mountain which is surrounded by these vast plains of really nothing and so uh, it feels very recluse almost but it's a nice place where you're surrounded by people who are just as excited as you are about your projects and you can really get focused on it. That's Sarah Caddy. She's a master's student at Macquarie University but she also spends time at Siding Spring Observatory where her work is focused on searching for the light from the very first galaxies that existed in the universe. Siding Spring, or SSO, is one of Australia's top sites for astronomical research. You've probably heard of Parks, made famous by the movie The Dish, but SSO is also a prominent character in Australia's space research story. It's about three and a half hours northeast of Parks, and one week in September, I went to SSO, to find out more about how researchers are using the facility to unlock the secrets of the universe. One of the first things you come across is the Anglo-Australian Telescope. Okay, so we've just parked out the front of the Anglo-Australian Telescope, which is a quite large white dome building. The uh, yellow setting sun in the distance sort of giving a lovely warm hue to the area. It's about 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening, so it's right on sunset. It's quite cold outside, and I'm going to have a look around, look at the sunset, and uh, see what it's about. The AAT is an amazing facility. It's the largest optical telescope in Australia, 3.9 meter mirror. That's Daniel Zucker. And I'm an associate professor of astronomy here at Macquarie University. So my father's a physicist, my oldest sister's a physicist, brother's a physicist, my sister's a neurobiologist. So you might say I kind of was always leaning towards the sciences. Okay, smart family. Now, back to the Anglo-Australian Telescope. It was built in the 70s, opened by Prince Charles in 1973. 
uh, and it's been working ever since then. Operated first as a consortium split between the UK and then Australia, and then when the UK withdrew from the consortium, then it was operated by the Australian government. And now, in the past couple of years, it has been devolved from the Australian government to a consortium of Australian universities. In terms of its future, the consortium arrangement goes several years into the future. However, I would say that it's not 100% clear what is going to happen after that agreement comes to an end. I certainly hope that things keep going for the foreseeable future. We are here at the Anglo-Australian Telescope, which is the AET for short, and we're in the control room with the two technicians on duty tonight, John and Andre, with an astronomer phoning in from Macquarie University as they uh, position the telescope to look at different objects in the sky to take spectra with the equipment on hand. It's quite interesting to be uh, in the belly of the beast, as it were. You know, we can see all the computer screens with their graphs and their images of what they're looking at. We can see the controls for the actual telescope. The screen of the position of the telescope is where it's looking at. It's like watching a well-oiled machine, human and instrument working in perfect harmony to create science. So you might think that astronomers actually look through the telescopes, like the, the Huntsman telescope. Um, it turns out we don't. That's Lee Spittler. Uh, my name is Lee Spittler. I'm an astronomer at Macquarie University. I also work on the Huntsman telescope at Siding Spring Observatory. Huntsman is a different telescope operating at SSO, and we'll hear about that more later on. But first, I asked Lee to explain how astronomers actually use telescopes, like the huge Anglo-Australian Telescope, or AAT. So they're usually, these days, just hooked up to a computer, and the light that comes into the telescope is just captured electronically and is just saved to a file on you know, a hard drive that we can analyze. So the kind of classic idea of that we're looking through a telescope when we make discovery with our own eye is kind of uh, not exactly what happens these days. I asked Daniel Zucker, who we heard from at the top, how he uses telescopes at SSO in his research, and what he's trying to find. Uh, my work centers on looking at the stars in our galaxy and its nearest neighbors to try to figure out how our galaxy formed and has evolved to the present day, to try to extrapolate to how galaxies throughout the universe have evolved over time. I would say my work at Siding Spring kind of has two main areas. One is using existing equipment and existing instruments to carry out surveys to do scientific research. And another focus would be trying to develop and build new facilities on the mountain that will enable us to do different types of research. So in terms of focusing on that second area, namely the new instruments and new facilities, I'm involved with Lee Spittler um, in the Huntsman project. Uh, I'm also involved with Dr. Christian Schwab, who is building a facility called Velociraptor, or Velociraptor, which is making use of an existing spectrograph, um, but building a new telescope to use it. Tell us what a spectrograph is. A spectrograph, if you will imagine what sunlight looks like going through a prism, you see the rainbow, you see the colors of the light spread out. A spectrograph is a way of doing that that's, in, in, in a way, it's more quantitative. So modern spectrographs spread out the light from the sun or from a star 
And then essentially the, the spread out light, that rainbow that we see from a prism, is detected on a CCD, a, a camera chip, just like we have in uh, modern day digital cameras. And from these spectra, we can tell all sorts of things about stars or planets or things of that sort, what they're made of, how fast they're moving, and so on. So just tell us quickly about Veloce Raptor, Velociraptor. Veloce, sort of an Italian name, is a new spectrograph that is currently on the Anglo-Australian Telescope. It's a 3.9-meter telescope at Siding Spring Observatory. And the one of the major reasons for building that new spectrograph was to look at exoplanets or the host stars of exoplanets, so planets um, around stars other than our sun. And this Veloce spectrograph is used quite a bit on the telescope, but not all of the time. Um, that telescope is shared between a number of different instruments. And what my colleague Christian thought would be a great idea would be, why don't we build a small telescope next to the Anglo-Australian telescope that could use the Veloce spectrograph when it's not being used by the big telescope? And so that's what we're doing. Um, we got funding to do this, and we're going to construct a 0.7-meter telescope right next to the AAT, and it will send the light from stars that it observes through an optical fiber to the spectrograph, the Veloce spectrograph, which is in the building of the AAT, the Anglo-Australian Telescope. And so that way, when Veloce is not being used by the big telescope, we'll be using it with a little telescope. And that will enable us to observe brighter objects, but we'll be able to observe them over longer stretches of time, essentially all of the time that Veloce is not being used by the big telescope. And so that'll enable us to do science that is harder to do and harder to schedule with big telescopes, where the telescopes have to be shared between different instruments. And then we went and had a look at one of the spectrographs at the facility. It was, again, a very cold room, black walls to keep the heat as low as possible so they don't get any expansion of the air and ruin their calibration of their instruments. There were these two stainless steel sealed chambers that housed the main instruments and we could see the many mirrors used to split the light up and direct it into their proper places so they can be uh, analysed by the computer. I mean the telescope collects all the light but this particular instrument is what does all the work of the observations at the AAT. With Velociraptor, we're looking to observe the host systems of exoplanets. When we talk about exoplanets and, and we talk about their host, their host is their, their star. Like the sun is, if you will, the host of our solar system. With exoplanets, they go around their own respective star. In some cases, stars. There might be more than one. And when we're looking at these stars, when we're getting spectra of these stars, we're able to measure the motions of these stars that are essentially caused by um, these exoplanets. Now, we can also study the properties of these stars, what they're made of, their relative compositions of different elements, their temperatures, things like that. And with some modeling, we can actually also estimate their ages. So by studying these stars in detail, we can learn a lot about the stars that have planets around them and get a better understanding of how planets relate 
to stars in, in our galaxy, and again, by inference, in the rest of the universe. You also have another uh, research project at the SSO. Do you mind telling us about that? Well, actually, there are two major projects I'm involved in, with right now at SSO, uh, observing projects that are large astronomical surveys. One of them is GALA, which is Galactic Archaeology with Hermes. This is using the Hermes high-resolution spectrograph to get spectra of a million stars in our galaxy. And with those high-resolution spectra, we can get detailed abundances, so the relative amounts of different elements in these stars, study their compositions in detail, their properties, their temperatures, model their ages, etc. And from this, we plan to create a overall picture, an overview of how the stars in our galaxy have formed and have moved around. For example, did our sun form at the distance from the galactic center that is today, or has it moved since it formed, etc.? Where are the sun's lost siblings? Things like that. So that's the GALA survey, and again, we plan to get a million spectra of stars. Uh, right now, we're up to over 600,000. The other major survey that I'm involved with at Siding Spring Observatory is the S5. Uh, S5 is short for the Southern Stellar Stream Spectroscopic Survey. And what that is looking at is stellar streams uh, around our galaxy, around the Milky Way. Now, stellar streams are what you get when a small galaxy or a star cluster is orbiting the Milky Way and happens to pass close enough that the Milky Way's tidal forces, much like the moon's tidal forces affect the water on Earth, the tidal forces of the Milky Way start to pull it apart. And as it's pulled apart, the stars stretch out kind of like taffy or some sort of stretchy candy. I mean, they're very, it's very diffuse, but you get the streams of stars that are forming both in front of and behind the little galaxy, the dwarf galaxy, or the star cluster. And what that leaves are streams of stars that encircle the Milky Way. And with modern surveys of the sky, like the Sloan Digital Sky Survey or the SkyMapper Survey, we are able to see these streams. But these are imaging surveys. We see the streams, but we don't know very much about their detailed properties. The spectroscopic survey, S5, that we're doing, we're getting spectra of these. From the spectra, we can figure out their compositions, what they're made of, how much iron they have, for example. Um, and we also get a good picture of their motions. And from their motions, and we can figure out basically how fast they're moving toward or away from us, we can estimate what their orbits are like. And from that, from this whole set of information, we can try to disentangle what the progenitor object is. In other words, what object was it? A dwarf galaxy, a star cluster, what were its properties? That got pulled apart by the Milky Way's tides. Also, by looking at these orbits, we can try to estimate what the distribution of matter is in our galaxy. Now, you might think, well, we see stars, so don't we know what the distribution of matter is? The thing is that in our galaxy and basically every other galaxy that's been looked at, there appears to be way more matter than we can see. When I say way more matter, I mean we see the gravitational effects of what we think is far more matter than we can actually observe. 
the current paradigm, the current way of understanding why there is all this matter is that there is dark matter, actually far more dark matter than there's normal matter like we're made of or the Earth is made of. Um, and by studying the orbits of these streams, we are in many ways able to kind of map what the distribution of this dark matter is, since most of the matter in our Milky Way, we believe, is dark matter. So it's kind of, we're not only studying the kinds of objects that have been pulled apart by our Milky Way and added to it over time, because these streams eventually mix in, but we're also trying to study what the properties and the distribution of the dark matter in our Milky Way is, and learn about, essentially, the role of dark matter in our galaxy. Moving on from that, in astronomy, there's a lot of grueling hours. What keeps you going? What inspires you? I think what inspires me is the idea that I'm figuring out things about the universe that no one else has figured out before, that I'm discovering new aspects of the universe we live in that no human has ever thought of before or ever or ever noticed or observed. And that's kind of coupled with the humble realization that, you know, I'm just one organism on one planet, a little planet around a normal boring star in a boring galaxy. And yet I and other astronomers are figuring out or working to figure out the secrets of the entire universe, how we got here, where we're going. Uh, I think these are really big fundamental questions and the idea that we, just these, again, organisms, small organisms on a small planet around a small star, are able to try to tackle these questions, I think is, is really exciting. We were then allowed to wander the greatest sighting spring observatory site. As we wandered amongst the domes, we came across a particularly unique telescope, Huntsman. Uh, Huntsman is a, uh, a specialized telescope. It's a bit different than normal telescopes. What it uh, uses is actually a set of uh, off-the-shelf Canon lenses uh, to study very uh, faint regions around other galaxies. The idea is that the Canon lenses are uh, really uh, really good at capturing light from these distant galaxies uh, in a way that uh, allows you to see the very outer edges, the very faintest structures around these galaxies, which give us some clues about how the, those galaxies are actually forming. The faint signatures that we're trying to look for are kind of like the same things that we're looking for, what we can see around the Milky Way. So small, tiny little galaxies, really diffuse things that are just really hard to see. With the, the Huntsman system, we're actually able to see these tiny little galaxies as they kind of make their way into uh, the bigger galaxies, so falling in, being ripped apart, the stars. So what we're kind of looking for is for little signs that those galaxies are growing, and by seeing how much those galaxies are growing or how many small galaxies are falling onto them, we get a better idea of how quickly galaxies are growing today. So did you say your telescope's made out of off-the-shelf Canon lenses? Yeah, so it's it's pretty different than normal ones. So the idea is that um, these lenses are really good at capturing a really clear picture of a galaxy. They're normally used in sports and wildlife photography, so they're something that you might actually see at a footy game or something like that. They're kind of the industry standard in terms of telephoto lenses. And so they're just really well made. They're really well suited for this particular type of astronomy. The 
advantage with a, a lens-based system. Uh, traditionally, these days, astronomers typically use really, really big mirrors. The trouble with mirrors is they're not perfectly polished, and any imperfection in the surface of that mirror causes light to go where it shouldn't go. So if you're taking an image and you're trying to capture that galaxy light, some other starlight might get into it, which makes it really hard to see the galaxy light. Without a mirror, the Canon lenses simply just focus the light from the galaxy exactly where it should be and starlight where it should be. And so that allows you to separate out the galaxy light really, really well and allows us to see things that you could not see with even bigger telescopes that are based upon mirrors. Why does all this research matter? What keeps you going? I guess the thing that excites me about my research is that discovery, you know, looking at a new part of the universe for the very first time. Um, I also like sharing that discovery with other people, um, not just other scientists and things like that, because I think sharing a bit about the universe with everyone is a really important thing to um, give people a bit of a perspective of, of how big the universe is, but also how special the Earth is, how um, almost precious it is. Um, and I think astronomy uh, opens the mind a bit and allows you to appreciate it a bit more. I grew up in Western Sydney, so dark skies for me haven't been particularly dark because of all the light pollution. So when I went to Siding Springs Observatory, I was very excited at the prospect of being able to experience the night sky in a very remote location as Siding Springs is. But even though I sort of had knew what to expect from all the pictures that I've seen on the internet of really dark sky places, I, it still didn't prepare me to actually see it in person. I could see billions and billions of stars. I mean, the best way that I could describe it to you is like looking at, at billions of tiny diamonds scattered over a vast sheet of velvet. It was just beautiful. I asked my lecturer, Professor Richard McDermott, exactly what the night sky means to him. Uh, for me, it it means remembering uh, how small I am uh, in this enormous universe. I think it's very easy to forget um, when you go about your daily life, you forget just uh, what an amazing universe we live in, how big it is. The night sky is, uh, it's, you know, just meeting a very familiar friend uh, in the night sky. You know, you, you, uh, if you study the stars, you get the chance to see a dark sky relatively often um, but you know living in the city day-to-day -day life and so on it's nice to get back out into into a dark place and having a clear sky and then you get to um, remember you know all the uh, the interesting and fascinating things the size the grandeur um, and uh, the peacefulness of being out in the dark with a bunch of people just all kind of taking it all in Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast from The Conversation. I'm Sananda Cray. Special thanks today to Cameron Furlong for bringing us this episode and for all the people he interviewed who took the time to talk to him. 
Our theme beats are by Uncle Ho from Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this episode from Free Music Archive. You can see a full list of credits and sign up for our daily newsletter all on our website at theconversation.com. I'll chat to you soon.